Hello and welcome. I'm Max Finder and this is Living 30, a podcast for people in their 30s trying to make this the best decade ever. Our 30s are a pivotal time. We spent our teens and 20s trying everything. We now have a better idea of who we are and what we want, and it's time for us to go after it. We've experienced education, both formal and informal, career success and career failure, love and heartbreak, and maybe even some births and deaths. Living 30 is devoted to gathering innovative approaches, deep insights, and lessons learned around topics like health, work, relationships, and more. Visit living30.blog and stay tuned for more interviews, articles, and to join the Living 30 community. Thanks for listening and enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to Living 30. I am your host, Max Finder, and we have with us Dr. Sarah Tabor. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, Sarah is calling in from Fayetteville, North Carolina. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. Okay. Um, Sarah is a crop and food safety scientist with 20 years of experience. Uh, She has a PhD in plant medicine from the University of Florida. And she hosts a podcast called Farm to Tabor, which I think is the uh, one of the most brilliant names for a podcast I've ever heard. Um, it's hilarious. And Can't take you also for have, that. That was a friend's idea. A friend's <laughs> idea. Well, it's, yeah. it's extremely clever. Um, your friend deserves their own episode dedicated to them. Maybe. She does. She really does. Uh, and you also have a caviar company called Persephone. Is that correct? Yes, that happened as well. <laughs> okay. Um, so let's, I mean, let's get right into it. Can you tell us a bit about the Caviar Company? It's fascinating to me. Sure, and I, I, yeah. I believe on the website you also say you call that farm-to-table caviar. Yes. Is that correct? Because that's what you got to call it. That's what we do now. So, <laughs> um, so the story that? with that. Yeah, so the story with that, I actually, I'm a crop scientist. So like you said, uh, it's, a, it's a doctor of plant medicine, which is a little bit different from a PhD. It's like a, it's like a medical degree or a veterinary degree just for plants, right? Um, so for those who keep track of what academic degrees are, there's a little bit of a difference. But anyway, um, so I'm a crop scientist. I do work with plants. We diagnose and treat issues and hopefully do a lot of prevention to make sure crops turn out correctly. Um, so I started working with a lot of vegetable crops, um, started doing a lot of greenhouse stuff. And if you were doing that during recession, you probably wound up working in aquaponics. Um, and kind of through that route, you know, I had to get to know water chemistry and all that stuff to keep the fish happy. And then kind of started working a little bit in aquaculture. Um, cause that's a very rapidly growing area that there aren't a whole lot of people trained in. So it just kind of made the jump a little bit and, um, ran into this, family that's growing caviar here in North Carolina. It's just, it's the eggs that come from a fish. So you just raise the fish until they make eggs. Um, and you harvest the fish, harvest the eggs, put a bunch of salt in them. And that is, you know, long story short, that's caviar, right? Um, these fish sturgeon are really endangered in the wild. And so they kind of figured out, well, if we can just raise them in captivity, you know, it's a pain in the butt because it takes a long time for them to mature to the point of making eggs. It's five to maybe 10 years. Um, but if we can do that in captivity, that takes a lot of pressure off the wild populations. And uh, 
So I kind of got to know this farm a little bit and they were doing amazing technical work. Like their engineering was great. Like as a result, their water quality was great and their fish were in really, really good shape. And they were making this amazing product. Um, it's, it's really easy to mess up caviar and, um, they're making this really top-notch product and they had a hard time selling it, which is a little paradoxical because there's, there's huge demand in the world for caviar that's not being met. Um, so you would think the world would be at a path to your door, but that is not how luxury marketing works at all. Um, so, you know, I said like, let's, let's see if we can kind of figure out something because I, I believe in what you're doing. I think your technology is great. Um, but if the financial success isn't there, then nobody is ever going to look at that and say, Ooh, I want to do more of this. <laughs> <laughs> you know, even though it's sustainable and even though the technique works, if we have a sales and marketing problem, um, like no one's ever going to pick up on that technology. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, wait, so, wait, go ahead. you help them found this company? Like, is that, is this oh, the no, first yeah. company? They already had their own company and everything. And I was just like, you know what? Um, just the way it worked and they're already doing things, it would make more sense for me to just start my own company and kind of sell it that way. Um, a lot of what I do in produce and in food in general is food safety. And that's the big hurdle to go through. And just, it was a lot easier for me to do the food safety work on my own than it was to like do it for them, if that makes sense. Right. Um, you know, you can get like way into the weeds of the details, but that's kind of the long and short of it. So that was kind of one of the big hurdles standing between them and, and broader market access. Um, so I was like, Hey, you know, let me do that since it, it's not, it's not that it was dirty over there. Like they are super clean. It has to be to make a good product, but it's just when it comes to like interfacing with the clients and kind of getting all, all that information out there, that was where they were kind of having the challenge. Um, yeah. So I don't so know. You it's found kind of, a, go ahead. You founded a caviar company. Yeah. So I'm a retailer uh, basically. You're a retailer. You're a caviar retailer. Mm -hmm. Did you ever or think wholesaler you gonna... if people want to buy it? So did you ever, did you ever think you were going to end up there? I mean, that's kind of a crazy little, Trajectory. Not normally like what scientists do, like particularly not crop scientists. So no, um, <laughs> right. but that's, um, I think that's where technology kind of takes you. And especially when it comes to sustainable technology, um, there are a lot of things out there that are very, they work great. Um, the adoption problem is not in the technology itself. It's in getting the product out there and getting in front of people. Um, and since kind of starting to work with that farm, I'm seeing that pattern over and over and over again in all kinds of places. So it, it was not just them. This is very common, um, not just for farms, but all kinds of sustainable technology. I did a podcast episode on biochar, something very similar. Um, great technology that's just having some, like just getting out in front of people and convincing them to use it kind of issues. Um, they talk about the technological valley of death. So that's where a lot of these green technologies are. And um I never really loved working in a lab too much. I think I'm like a little bit too hyperactive to handle like a life under fluorescent lights. <laughs> right. um, and well, you're very personable and you, I mean, you have this podcast, you're, you're a people person for sure. I mean, that's part of it, right. Is, is getting in front of the customer and, and, and pitching these products. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and ideally, like I, I really love being around plants, you know, like people are fine, but plants are great. Right. Um, so that right. kind of had been my original goal is like, I just want to be with plants all day and make the plants healthy and thrive and, and deal with all of that stuff. Um, but yeah, agriculture doesn't quite work like that. Like you basically have to be born with land or work in California and neither one of those happened for me. So, um, so right, you have so to be creative. Hmm? Can we unpack that for a second? So California, because that's where almost everything in the United States is grown. Is that correct? 
Yeah, but let's talk about why that is. Uh, people think it's because of the weather. I would contend to you that it is not. It's because of the people. Um, you know, my salt earth type of people. No, who just... no. <laughs> the salt of the earth trope is just it's smoke and mirrors. Um, people are people everywhere in every industry. Okay, um, it's the human capital. That's what it is. Um, I have a cat making weird noises. Give me one oh, second. That's okay. That's okay. It's part of under us knowing who you are. What's your cat's name? Here we go. Now he opened the door and he doesn't want to come in. So that's great. Okay. All right. What's the cat's name? Uh, this is Mbaku the cat. We adopted him the week Black Panther came out. And Got it. And he was kind of thick. So, you know... <laughs> Um, let's see. So, where were we? Human California capital. Yeah, human capital. Not, not salt of the earth. Farmers are just people everywhere. People are people. Um, I think that salt of the earth trope was just kind of made up to throw smoke in people's eyes. It's just not. People are people. Anyway, um, it has nothing to do with morals or ethics or being authentic or salt of the earth, anything. It is about knowledge and it is about skill. And that's kind of like, I think for me, the first rule of agriculture is anytime someone starts throwing nostalgia at you, you know, they're up to something not good. <laughs> yeah, that's they, yeah. I, I didn't realize there were such nefarious actors at play in, in, in agriculture. I guess there oh, are. Honey. Yeah. Huh? Colonialism, dear. <laughs> tell, me, tell me all about it. I'm here. I'm here to learn this stuff. Uh, we'll get to that back in a minute, but the TLDR of it all is if you boil it all down, basically, just about everywhere in the United States, if you want to farm, you better have been born owning land. And if you can't right. hack that, you better marry into it, right? California is really the only place in a country that you can farm for a job. Like it's a job that you can get. And if it's a job that you can get, that means like any job, you can grow in skill and you can kind of like get more experience and you can get promoted and you can move to maybe higher end operations that take more skill. So California is really unique in that um, there's actually a market for skill, if that makes any sense. Like I have been living in North Carolina for a few years and um, I know a couple people who are professionals who work in agriculture, um, you know, professional growers, trainers, you know, coaches, that kind of thing. Um, in California, that's very commonplace. So I actually found it better for my work to just commute to California and work out there for two to four weeks at a time than it was to try and find any job here. Wow. So, and so that's, were you yeah. working on a farm at this time? No, life? I was doing food safety work. So okay. like, that's another thing is I think when we talk about agriculture, we think farmer Brown gets up, farmer Brown does his chores, farmer Brown goes to bed, right? Everything is done in house by the one guy, farmer Brown. In reality, farmers are more like a general contractor especially in produce, because there's a lot more moving parts to a produce farm. Um, and so there are a lot of uh, service providers, a lot of contractors involved. So I was like a farm contractor. I don't own a farm. I do stuff for farmers. Right. Yeah, so, I, yeah. I recently sort of started to get to know the fact that there's something called the pack house, which is mm -hmm. a completely different sort of segment from actually growing the fruits and vegetables. There's mm -hmm. then a whole other sort of industry that is just putting the fruit, washing it, you know, packaging it and shipping it. Right. 
Oh yeah, I mean like when you when you pick fruit, it's it's in a bulk bin that's like basically the size of a palate and it's hot, which is not good for freshness. <laughs> you need to get it to stop being hot. Um, you know, and it's it's covered with like sweat and like field dust, which is like not the worst thing ever, but again, like that's going to make it get kind of scummy after a while. Um, and it, it's not in like any kind of packaging that you would buy it in, right? So it has to get from point A to point B somehow in the packing houses just where that happens. Right. And so, so you worked on a farm in the past, not as a food safety person, but did you actually get your hands dirty in the growing side of things or ne- or just in food safety? Yeah, I've, I've held a lot of jobs in agriculture. So again, like you keep asking working on a farm, there is so much more to agriculture than like working on a farm. <laughs> like that's, that's definitely part of it. I have done that, right? Um, but I've also spent a lot of time on the R and D side. Like for example, I I did a lot of breeding for Florida blueberries. Um, that's a crop that didn't exist 40 years ago. It had to be bred into existence. So (laughs) there, there were not blueberries that tasted good that could also grow in Florida. Um, so I spent a few years working on the farm where, or the, the lab where we create, like we do the crosses, you know, we evaluate the new, uh, baby blueberries that come out like is this bush good does it make good fruit does it survive in florida um so we're running a farm you know we're doing all the farm labor we're planting you know we're doing maintenance we're doing irrigation we're maintaining all the pipes and everything uh we're doing harvest we're picking stuff by hand we're like crawling through the underbrush to weed things when we need to um that is running a farm you know Right. Uh, it is for breeding purposes as opposed to like straight up sale purposes, but we're still doing all that stuff. Like it would not be any different if I worked on a commercial farm. Um, you'd have how, a different balance of chores, but you're still doing the same chores, if that makes sense. Yeah. And how important do you think those chores are to sort of your general understanding of the space, having experienced that? I mean, is that, would you recommend that to people trying to get into agriculture that they get their hands dirty, so to speak? Yeah, I think you absolutely need to spend at least a little bit of time in that. Um, that being said, so I'm trying to figure out how to formulate this. Um, like, yeah, I think absolutely doing the actual handwork has been critical for me understanding ag the way I do. Um, but obviously there's no future in it, right? <laughs> right. Um, like picking blueberries by hand, not a lucrative gig, right? Um, so you yep. need, you need to spend your time doing that in order to understand what's happening. And actually one of the best farmers that I ever met did not grow up on a farm. He grew up being a broke ass fruit picker. Excuse me. Let me go back. He grew up being a broke ass fruit picker. That's, that was his introduction to farming. And, um, I think it really changed his mindset and I think it made him one of the best farmers that I've ever seen in my life. Um, right. he actually ran a packing house on his own farm while his wife ran it. And a lot of men who run farms get really like, you know, some men get really nervous when their wife earns more than they do. Um, Yeah. So if you are a farm and you have both a farm and a packing house, almost inevitably the guy ends up running the farm and the woman ends up running the packing house. Um, Right. And uh, that means she's going to make more money than he does. And a lot of dudes feel weird about that. And uh, they kind of have to like shut it down. (laughs) And then they're like, how come we're not making any money? <laughs> and uh, this guy was not like that. He was like, that's my girl. She makes the money. This is great. Now we have more money. You know, like he was pretty straightforward. You know, he was, he knew what was good for him. <laughs> and I just, I have to wonder if kind of that background of growing up actually being poor 
and not owning land. And I think not tying his sense of self to being the boss had a lot to do with me. What made him a good farmer? Right. So, um, so yes, sh- long story short, I think doing the handwork is very important. <laughs> yeah. And you mentioned that, so it, it's impossible to get into agriculture unless you either live in California or own or grew up on a farm. Right? Pretty much. Yeah. Like also in Mexico. So that's just for the United States, right? So in Mexico, farming is also a job that you can get. Um, there are isolated farms here and there throughout the rest of the United States that will hire people professionally, but it's not like the norm. Right. So you have to like know somebody. <laughs> the job openings are far and, and few and far between. Whereas out in California, you know, it's, it's somebody's hiring all the time. Right. Um, and can you speak to the aspect of women in farming? I mean, I, that's an interesting topic and something that I definitely wanted to cover with you. I mean, could you, is there any kind of ratio that you can think of, of sort of the women to men mm-hmm. in the, Yes, farm, I would love to hear more. farm owners are 85% men, according to the right. USDA. So that's that's a pretty vast majority. So it, it's interesting, too, because if you say, like, the farmer, like, what is a farmer? Is that the person who's the farm owner on the paperwork? Is that the person who does the work? Is that the person who owns the farm? You know what I mean? Um, farmer is a really wobbly word, and I think that is kind of deliberate in a lot of ways. It can be really deployed to kind of fuzz up what's really happening under the surface and who's really doing the work, Right. Um, so in agriculture, you know, women in the family do a lot of the work. They particularly tend to do like the stuff that translate it, translates it from chores into being an actual business. Right. So, um, the paperwork, invoicing, sales, marketing, um, bookkeeping, all of that stuff, payroll, that really tends to be pink collared. And so that means that the people who have the best financial knowing of like what's going on in the farm are tend to be the women. Um, but you also have at the same time, kind of this really conservative culture that really believes in gender roles. And part of that gender roles is women don't make business decisions for everyone. You know, you can decide how you're going to do your chore when you want to do it, but you don't get to make decisions for the farm. That's his job. Um, right. And and, how do they respond to, how do they respond to you as sort of, you know, an expert, a PhD and a woman in this space? I mean, are, are people receptive to your your ideas and insights and stuff like that on how to run the farm better? (laughs) Absolutely not. So number one, I'm not there to tell people how to do things. Um, So I I work in food safety. The majority of my work in food safety has been as an auditor. So I'm this just there. We're kind of like, it's kind of like an organic certification. You're like, okay, we need to be doing certain things. Are they happening? or Are they not happening? Right. We're actually not allowed to tell them what to do. So that's never really been an issue. Right. Um, of course, farmers don't like this, you know, accountability to the outside world is not why you own your own business <laughs> of any kind, right. right? Including farming. So there's a, I mean, there can be a lot of like, it's like being the opposite of the pizza man. You know, if you deliver pizza, people are just happy just because you showed up. Um, people love the pizza guy. Yeah. If you're an auditor. Oh, yeah. yeah. If you're an auditor, people are pissed off just because you showed up. <laughs> um, so my father. But just a short aside, my father was asked earlier in his career to be the um, – he's an accountant and he worked for the IRS. Mm-hmm. I mean he didn't work for the IRS, but the IRS tried to recruit him to be in the internal, internal affairs of the IRS, so investigating potentially crooked IRS agents. Oof, and so he would have been – oh, yeah. He would have been not only hated by the rest of the world because everyone hates the IRS, mm-hmm. but also hated by everyone 
in the IRS for investigating them, right? Nice. So, yeah, you have no friends left. Yeah, exactly. You got to go. So, are you sort of you're sort of in that role? I mean, you mm-hmm. are on a non grata auditor. Yeah. So for that, it doesn't matter who you are. They're not going to be happy that you're there, right? <laughs> Um, I will say that, um, interestingly enough, like the sexism and racism, racism actually kind of works out for you. If you're a white woman in agriculture, who's a service provider, if you are actually owning a farm, if you're trying to put yourself out there as I'm a peer and I have authority and I own stuff and I'm one of you guys, that's when they get pissed off. And I was not doing that. I don't own a farm. You know, I'm there as a service provider. Ideally when you're doing an audit, um, again, it's like an organic certification when, they said, I need this certification. So you come inspect me. I didn't work for the government. This was a private certification. So we're there as a service to them. So I'm really kind of there as a service provider. Um, a lot of them would forget that they'd like forget that they paid for me to come and invited me to come. And they'd be like, why are you here? (laughs) But usually they're remembered and you really kind of want to frame that entire meeting and encounter as I'm here as a service to you. Now, if you're a white woman talking to a white man and saying, I'm here as a service to you, that makes sense to them. That is your role. That right. is their place. That actually makes sense to them. So you're not ruffling any feathers doing that. Right. Um, and so do you think any of this is changing? Like, so you're in your mid thirties. I mean, do you think over the next five to 10 years, this will start to change? These old traditional farm owners are going to retire, die, whatever. I mean, is any of that going to be different? Uh, I think it's going to be different, but it's not going to be as a result of the good old boys going like retiring and going away. Cause there's like good young boys. Like they have sons who are a lot like them. <laughs> right. That's not what's going to change it. Um, I think what's really going to drive a change in agriculture is, is other things that are happening that no one's paying attention to. Um, farm labor is becoming more expensive. So as a farmer, you have to adapt. And the only way to adapt to that like they're trying to make automation a thing and to some extent that works, but that just means you need, you need fewer people, but the people you need have to be even more trained and they're even harder to keep a hold of. So automation is not the escape route to labor problems that people think it is. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. So people are, you're going to have to hire fewer people, but you're going to have to like be nicer to the ones that you've got. And that is going to be a mind fuck for a lot of people. Um <laughs> What, what's your swearing policy, by the way? <laughs> uh, swear as much, swear as much as you like. Oh right. Um, yeah. So that's that's one of the things um, is the farm labor situation. Um, there's actually a whole lot you can do to regear your business to survive and thrive in times of high labor costs. Um, agriculture's just never really been forced to do that because it's been exempt from all the labor laws. Um, so just the market and the lack of labor availability is what's going to force them to do it. So that's going to be interesting to watch. I think that's going to change a lot of things. A lot of folks who cannot adapt, who cannot do the things that you need to do uh, to make good use of employees' time, like um, have your tools working properly, do preventive maintenance so you're not losing time to having to fix things. Um, Basically, don't waste your employees' time, uh, which means you as the business owner or operator need to be a lot more organized um, than a lot of folks currently are. You need to have really good retention because the longer somebody's there, the more productive they are. They know what they know where everything is. They know what to do. Um, that's a huge one. So again, you're gonna have to be nice to your employees to get retention. That kind of thing. So those are not technology issues. Those are just social issues, and those are things that agriculture has 
agriculture has really kind of shaped public policy to make labor cheap. So they didn't have to learn how to be nice to their employees. <laughs> so this is going to be really interesting to watch. Um, so that's one big thing. Another one, I th- another thing I think is going to change agriculture is social media. Um, it's really interesting. So you, you go ahead. Oh, well, I was going to say, I mean, you're, you're a pretty powerful social media user. You have a ton of Twitter followers and you're, you got a, your farm to Tabor podcast. I mean, is that, is that impacting the way that farms interact with your services and, and uh, work no, with no, that's, that's not how social media is going to make a difference. Like, you know, I, I've got my thing that I'm doing and that's awesome. But if somebody doesn't want to change, I'm not going to change their mind. Um, <laughs> that's, that's not what I mean. So what I mean is, um, just the existence of social media in general. So, you know, that thing where, um, kind of the, the newer marketing techniques and small farms and everything, it allows you to connect with your farmer. Like that's, that's really the discourse about it, right? That's why it's great. You can connect with your farmer. Well, it also means that your farmer can connect with you, which is actually, I think, a much bigger deal. And here's why. <laughs> um, traditionally in rural areas, I mean, you're kind of, you're dealing with some isolation, right? Uh, in rural areas, do you know a thing called resource curse? No. Okay. So resource curse was a, a social theory, just like kind of an explanation for why things happen the way they do. Um in countries that have a ton of natural resources, paradoxically, there's a ton of poverty. So we're talking about, you know, um, or there can be a ton of poverty, like a lot of really mineral rich countries in Middle East, Africa, like the Middle Eastern countries have, are distributing the oil wealth, but there's still not a huge amount of human capital um, all the time. You have a lot of like, again, resource rich countries in Africa and South America, um, where bajillions of dollars worth of materials are being exported. And yet everybody's poor and has no access to healthcare or education. What's up with that? Right. <laughs> Where's the money going? Um, so, so they had to develop some, some tools to understand human behavior to figure that one out. Right. So as best as we can tell, uh, the big thing going on there is when you have a really lucrative natural resource, uh, that means that whoever owns it or controls it is like the big shot. It's kind of like feudalism. Like you just control things by owning, controlling the land or oil, if it's a oil wealth, uh, natural resource. And it's really interesting because this theory was really developed using mineral wealth as kind of the model, but like, that's how feudalism worked in Europe for like a thousand years. So <laughs> we're no strangers to this as well in quote unquote rich countries. So if you go to the United States and you go to rural areas, uh, agricultural areas, which is not synonymous with rural, um, we have like we have a lot of resource curse actually. Like we have all this farmland, and um, if you go to any of these agricultural counties, there's usually like two to maybe ten families that own all the land. Really, if you if you look at it, and right. um, Natural resource ownership is a zero sum game. Like if you own a lot of money, other people can still own a lot of money. But if you own this much land, that's land that can't be owned by anybody else. So not only do you have more, but everyone else has less by definition, right? Um, so what winds up happening in an agricultural county, again, you have two to maybe 10 families that own all the land. That means they call all the shots. Like that's the only productive resource in the area. So if anybody who doesn't own land or doesn't own a lot wants a job, that means you're going to be their boss. So you have to keep them happy. Like if they want to stay employed, if they want to keep their land, any of that stuff, if they want to do business and have a life in that County, they have to keep these two to 10 families happy. 
So that's really kind of how the social life in agricultural areas has been oriented. And it's so funny because the sustainability movement try to, tries to make it sound nice. They'll say things like relationships that are bound through generations, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, that's just fancy words for a good old boy network. Okay. <laughs> um, so you really have a very strong good old boy network in a lot of these areas, again, run by kind of like two to 10 families. And there's, there's a patriarch at the top of this family. So it's really run by two to 10 guys. Um, so how does, how does 35, 36 year old Sarah Tate, like, is, is it in your interest there. to break? We're getting break, Okay, go ahead. <laughs> so you have these two to 10 guys running everything. So the social life out there is really built around keeping these two to 10 guys happy. You can't say anything that they don't want to hear. Um, not just to them, but like to anybody else, because they'll find out about it, right? Um, there's a real culture of fear in a lot of agricultural areas as a result of that. I mean, you talk to any farm worker, they'll tell you, right? So, <laughs> um, so if you're a young person, you know, trying to do farming in these areas, your only way to like, you know, if you, whether you have family land that you're trying to hang on to and kind of like, you know, run when you get older, or if you're trying to establish yourself, you've never been there before, you really have to enmesh yourself in this community and keep these good old boys happy. And uh, otherwise you have no living. That's traditionally how economics in agricultural areas have worked. But with social media, not only can the consumer connect to the farmer, but their young farmer can connect to you and they can make money directly from actually selling products to customers as opposed to being a service provider for one of the two to 10 good old boys in town, which was previously the only way to make a living. So this radically changes the balance of power in rural areas. And I don't think anybody's quite realized it yet. So... This has nothing what, to do with me. It, Go ahead. Hmm? No, but what is it that you're seeing that, that like, what, what are some practical examples of that? that I'm just seeing a, like a, seeing a lot of young farmers being more willing to kind of speak out about what they're experiencing. And that that's only young farmers who are economically independent, who have already built up enough of a business that they can afford to piss off their neighbors. <laughs> right. So it's not too numerous yet at this point, but I feel like millennials are really, you know, just kind of getting started. And, um, I know a lot of young farmers who are not in a place where they can really speak out about it yet, but they're definitely feeling some things and they're brewing up some thoughts that are going to be said out loud <laughs> when they're able. Um, so that's really interesting to watch. There's a whole thing cooking up here in the countryside that I don't think anybody knows about yet. So that is again, just super fun to watch. Um, I think that is going to, uh, these folks are kind of more oriented towards, Hey, people need a food, I can make a food. You would think that's the logical business model in agriculture. And it traditionally, it really has not been. The business model in agriculture has been land speculation. And making food is really just kind of a byproduct of the land speculation. And that's why the food sucks. It's not actually what anybody's paying attention to. It's um, productive use of the real estate that they own. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, it's really kind of like the real estate macho model, as opposed to like, right. let's make products that people want model. So social media makes let's make products that people actually want model. It actually makes that possible. Um, so again, like <laughs> it just makes a logical business model feasible, which is actually a huge change for agricultural areas. So long story short, I think social media is going to really change the entire business model of agriculture from really kind of a real estate speculation based model to an actual, maybe let's make stuff that people want model 
which um, I think that's going to be really huge. And I don't think that people realize that change is happening yet. Um, you know, because it tends to be so late in life that you inherit a farm and you actually come to kind of or inherit, you come to be in charge of it. Succession happens when you're maybe in your forties. Like, we're starting to have a few young farmers take over the family farm now that they're hitting their thirties. But I think we're about to have, you know, a lot of millennial farmers kind of get more power in their family operation. And obviously a lot of millennial farmers are not that enlightened. We're not a magical generation by any means. Um, but I think there are like, just because of the opportunity of being able to grow up kind of on social media, there are a lot of folks who have grown up just being a lot more accustomed to communicating and knowing what other people think and just kind of dealing with it. <laughs> Maybe more so than their parents. Um, it kind of counteracts the isolation that can happen in rural areas. So you have just have a lot of young people that grew up with the idea of communicating constantly. And I think that's going to really help them with marketing. Um, yeah. Okay. The end. So how, <laughs> if you had to think, how else the how else the agriculture industry is changing because of millennials? I mean, like I think about things like Beyond Meat, maybe, and mm -hmm. like these other artificial. Um, uh, you know, I, the reason I even came across you was actually your article about uh, land use for for cattle versus for growing vegetables versus for growing. Um, you know, these, these art these proteins that are being used to make artificial meat. I mean, can you speak to how millennials are sort of changing things from your eyes in the agriculture space? Mm -hmm. um, anything that comes to mind? Right. So here's the thing is I think we have really been told by marketing that our individual consumption choices are like hugely influential and they're going to shape the world. And I will tell you as someone who works in agriculture, that's assuming that the transmission between the steering wheel of consuming and, uh, you know, the, um, the engine of production are in any way connected and they're not actually that connected. Um, a lot of agriculture, again, the business model is actually real estate speculation. And so the, the crops themselves are not that much of a part of the business model as you would think, um, for one thing. And then second, because of government programs, uh, farms decision-making can be so insulated from the marketplace and, and price signals that I don't actually see uh, consumer choice as being that important in changing agriculture, um, which is like, I think a lot of people experience that message as being very depressing because again, we've been taught very deliberately by marketing that we have all this power as consumers to change the world. And I think we just don't. Um, we need to look for other ways to exercise our power and, and be cautious of anybody who tells you that the best thing you have to offer the world is being a consumer. You know what I mean? That's weird. Yeah. So you're, <laughs> you think that you're changing the world in your way. I mean, is that all in your head as something that you're going after something that you're doing? Uh, yeah, I don't think podcasting or tweeting or even writing books or anything is the ultimate best way to do that. It's just what I am doing right now. I had to transition from a really high travel job because of like health problems basically caused by all the travel. So this is really more just like I needed personally to change my job more than like, I feel like this is going to change everything. Um, <laughs> there were just, you know, there were, go ahead. You do have a following and you do have, I mean, you are, speaking your mind about these things and you are quite opinion opinionated don't you think i mean you, you are yeah, I mean, influencing people 
Yeah, I mean, like, Martin Luther King Jr. is very opinionated, too, and he sure solved racism by himself, right? <laughs> There's a, like, it, it's great to be opinionated, um, but that in and of itself is not a solution. Um contributing you don't feel like you're contributing yeah i think there's yeah i think it's i think what you're asking is is raising awareness doing the job and i'm like well obviously not um you you need to communicate with people and kind of like have a common vision as to what the problem is in order to to do something about it right so that is the value that you can add as someone who who speaks to a problem um but like again kind of to go back to the martin luther king jr example he was very concrete about like me giving speeches is not the point here the point is that we have some economics change and we have some laws change um and that's not something that uh <laughs> an individual person can do i think the maybe the biggest impact that i'm having is that other young farmers are feeling like oh i can say these things that i've been seeing forever out loud and i won't get killed instantly i think that's really probably the most powerful thing about it um I'm writing a book. Hopefully that will like kind of be able to reorganize the way we've been looking at agriculture's problems a little bit. I think a lot of the things the sustainability movement is trying to do to solve agriculture are actually making the problems worse. So we should talk about that. Um, you know, if I'm lucky. In- about it. I mean, what, what, uh, what, what, what are some of the, the things there that are like at the, at the top of the list? Uh, I think the whole worshiping family farms thing is actually really destructive, (laughs) you know, because you kind of mentioned like salt of the earth. Like we have this belief that if we can just go back to family farms, which is such a fallacy, they were never as dominant as anybody thinks they were. Master tenant farming was was far more powerful in the U.S., like through the entirety of its history. Um, So like, yeah, let's go back to master tenant farming. Like that's not a rallying cry anybody believes in. Right. But that would that's what going back to a past would actually be like. Um, so number one, we have this belief that family farming used to be dominant. We have this, not true. We have this belief that it was good, not necessarily true. We have this belief that um, it's struggling now because of agribusiness. I'm not even 100% sure that is true. I think agribusiness exists now because family farming has always been a struggle. Like it's just never been a great business model. So there's all this nostalgia and rose-tinted glasses woo that we have about how there used to be a perfect life back in the day, and we can totally recapture that, and I don't think any of that is true. So kind of having the sustainability model oriented around a lie, I don't think that helps anybody. Right. So you're, are you, do you feel you're trying to, it, 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 part of, with this book, for instance, expo- expose that lie, that part of your near-term yeah. mission? Yeah, and I have I have nothing against like family farms who are trying to run a good business and who are trying to run a tight ship. That's fantastic. They should do that. That's fantastic. Um, what I don't like is consumers being told it is your duty to save these people. Because for one thing, the average family farm and, and averages are what they are, right? But the average American has about $80,000 in net wealth. The average farmer has dollars like $880,000 in net wealth. So that's 11 times the, the average American's net wealth. So if anyone should be saving anybody else, farmers should be saving us. And they also make more money, just like gross or just income per year. Farmers also make more money than non-farming Americans. And that's been the case since the 90s. So it's insane that we have this thought in our heads that we're supposed to save them. They are doing way better than we are. Well, interesting. Yeah. Um, <laughs> What about the whole 
organic, I guess these are separate things, but organic, vegan, I mean, can you speak to any of these kinds of movements that are extremely popular among people in our age bracket and that you see in the media? What do you think about all that? I think if you want to know about nutrition, you should not ask me because I'm not a nutritionist. You should watch the episode of Adam Ruins Everything that covers nutrition and that will answer everything you need to know. Okay. Well, we'll link to it in <laughs> I'm not a food guru. So that's the thing is like, if you talk about agriculture, people expect that you're like a food guru in disguise. And I'm like, no, really, I do agriculture. <laughs> um, got it. And Well, I, I'm interested in, in, I, in your, um, the way that you operate, knowing all that you know about agriculture. I mean, are there are there foods that you'll absolutely not eat because of how you know where it comes from? Or is there anything that, that you can speak to sort of like that? Uh, no, I don't eat sprouts no. cause I don't like the way they feel in my mouth. <laughs> um, again, so I work in produce. Maybe if I worked in meat, I would have a very different story to tell you, but you know, I mean, I've seen some stuff where I'm like, Oh, that's definitely not how I would do it. But in terms of like, I will never eat this product from any place ever again. No. Got it. Mm -hmm. Do you, uh, do you garden? Uh, no, I travel too much. Like I'll plant stuff and then it dies. Right. So it's, okay. it's one of those cobbler's children are always barefoot kind of deal. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Like my first job was detasseling corn, you know? <laughs> so, um, I mean, that's a pretty intense, uh, in the field experience right there. And it's really funny too, because you'll hear a lot of people talk about like, oh, I used to work in agriculture. And you ask them more and they're like, I detasseled corn and that's what taught me how to be a man. And to this day, detasseling corn is the cushiest job I've ever had in my life. So oh, yeah. um, fascinating. Yeah, you just you just walk through a cornfield and pick the, this part of the plant off. It's it's not complicated. You can listen to your Walkman while you're doing it. There's no boss breathing down your neck. If there's coworkers you don't like, you can avoid them by going three rows over. It is the best job I've ever had. So um yeah, it's weird to me that people talk about it like it was like this apocalyptic experience. <laughs> um, do, and you, so can you talk a little bit about the podcast? And so we, you did mention how um, rural life is sort of um, not lonely. I mean, I forget the word that you use, but, uh, you know, people are finding themselves sort of uh, enclosed in rural life. And so, I mean, in your experience, you did start building this large internet following and presence. Um, I mean, can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. So it sounds like you're, you're asking if most of my farmers are followers, excuse me, if most of my followers are farmers. And I would say that's absolutely not the case. Um, yeah, no, I mean, who, who are your followers? Anyone that's interested in, in agriculture? I, I'm one of your followers and I'm right. just interested in some of the things you write. Yeah, I think it's just kind of the same demographic that my, buys Michael Pollan books. You know, like there's <laughs> there's a real thirst for that kind of information. And I do have some farmers, like some followers who are farmers. I have some like, have made some really great friends who are younger farmers who have been seeing a lot of this stuff. And we kind of like every once in a while we'll check in and I'm like, I'm seeing this. Am I crazy? And they're like, no, you're not crazy that is very real. Here's what happened the other day with this over at my place, you know, um, because you're kind of surrounded by, again, that culture of fear where you're not allowed to talk about the weird stuff that you see happening right in front of you. Um, you know, just 
lot of gaslighting, a lot of bad business decisions that everybody's pretending are fine. Um, and when it doesn't work out, it's somehow the government's fault, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so like in that sense, like, yeah, I've made some like really great kind of friends and allies in the farm community through that. But I think most of the followers are just kind of like general, just the same people who, you know, listen to like buy farm books in general, if that makes any sense. Yeah. I mean, do you think that people, younger people are trying to get more connected to their food and, and learn more about it? Is it something that you have experienced? Uh, I'm sure that's the case. I don't know. Um, one thing I will tell you is I really don't like to do the kids these days thing. And I really don't like to do the people these days don't know where their food comes from thing. I think that's a bullying tactic that the agriculture industry developed to make people feel foolish and tell them to sh sit down and shut up. We're the big boys and you need to let me dictate how this is done. Uh, so no, I don't engage in that kind of uh, thing. <laughs> like sometimes I do get, huh? Uh, I, I, what do you mean exactly? I'm sorry. I don't, I don't quite understand. Well, you're asking like if, if young people these days are trying to connect with their food, which kind of presumes that they're disconnected in the first place and something should be done about it. Right. Uh, and so is that, is that, you don't think that that's the case that they're not disconnected? Well, I think people are definitely curious about it, like in the same sense that they're curious about like, you know, how does computer stuff work? There's also, you know, a big information industry about how to program. There's a big information industry about, um, you know, bird watching, hiking, camping. Like there's just people like to read about stuff they're curious about. And I think it's fine for food to be one of these things. Um, I think that's definitely the case. I think people just in general are curious about everything. Right. I guess food is a little more of a an essential piece of people's lives than that is the inner workings of uh, bird watching, let's say, right? Like, I mean, people are eating something like three times a day. Um, and Yeah, but we're drinking uh, and, and pooping even more than that. Well, maybe not three times a day. <laughs> so like, uh, again, like, so that's kind of a, the stuff you're alluding to is, is a, is a big talking point in oh, that. So the stuff that you're alluding to is kind of, it's a big talking point, right? Food is the most important thing because we do it three times a day. I'm like, well, we breathe air all the time. We, we pee and poop like pretty much constantly, right? If you're, if you're hydrated. So where does that all go? Somebody has to clean it up so it doesn't get in our water supply. We will die a lot faster without clean water than we do without food. We're not treating sanitation engineers with that same kind of heroism. That's how you can tell this whole like, farmers are important thing is really more of an economic and social talking point that it is really about health if that makes sense and i think i lost you again still there no no, no i'm here yeah, yeah okay yeah, i got you yeah my my uh, computer gave me a warning so that's <laughs> uh, the the remote recording so um yeah. so there are there are a lot of jobs that are critical to maintaining human life right and farming is just one of them um for example you know when people say food comes from farms if you believe that, you know, like, go ahead and walk over to a cow and take a bite out of her and let me know how that works out, right? Um, there are a lot of intervening steps between the farm and a thing you can eat, right? And I feel like a lot of that work has really been discounted as not real work because it was traditionally done by women. Like, men would kill the cow and maybe cut into quarters. And after that, a lot of the butchering and preparing was women's work. That's the mm. case for a lot of different kinds of food. Transferring anything from milk into edible dairy products, that was always women's work. Poultry. Fun story there. That was also traditionally women's work. And I almost feel like the quote unquote agribusiness takeover was more because like 
it was it was women's work to take care of the chickens and it was never seen as a business because stuff women do is not business that's like household chores so no one ever saw the point in financializing it or investing in it like hey let's raise more chickens and sell them that just wasn't seen as a business kind of thing to do and then one day along come Tyson and Purdue and they're like, hey, we can build you a chicken coop and we can fill it with chickens for you and we can sell you the feed. And all of a sudden it sounded like a business and the guys were like, yeah, write a check. And their wives had been there for decades. Like, dude, give me money to, <laughs> to raise more chickens. Um, and so it's, again, this is a little bit of a tangent from, from where we started, but the way we talk about quote unquote, the fall of family farms and the agribusiness takeover is missing a lot of important pieces of information. In a lot of cases, I'll tell you, landowners kind of did this to themselves. And um, the whole, it's really important for people to know where their food comes from and food comes from farms is really just an ideological battle that landowners do to try and put themselves at the center of the universe so everyone else will take care of them, which I think is really inappropriate. So I'm like busting all your bubbles here. Sorry. <laughs> it's, it's, it's enlightening. Yeah. Um, you're very smart about this stuff. And obviously I haven't you know, studied enough of it to, to really know enough, know enough to ask, you know? Right. Well, no, I mean like the, we've, we've been taught to believe these things. Like we've been taught to believe that farmers are the most important people. Right. Um, right by the farmers like this is what i'm talking about like that is a bullying tactic is like you're feeling kind of like oh man i didn't know um there's no reason for you to know right like you've been told to believe a certain way by marketing and there's really no messages or education kind of like pushing against that at all um so like i feel like that happens a lot as people are like oh man now like now i feel silly and i'm like don't feel silly like we've been brainwashed <laughs> that's that's why we have like that's why we ask the questions that we do that's why we kind of prioritize the things that we prioritize is we've had 400 years of you know at least in the united states you know 400 years of colonialism telling us that landowners and farmers are like the only important people yeah well so uh, so don't feel bad it, it happens no, yeah. so is this is this the topic of your book uh kind of sort of um, yeah, I've, I've kind of been on a little bit of a writing hiatus for the last two or three weeks because I can write for about two or three weeks and then everything else in life piles up to a point where you can't ignore it anymore. So you have to like take a break and deal with that stuff. Um, right. so I dove back what in. What is your writing, uh, habit process? How, how do you chip away at that book? I don't know yet. I'll let you know when I find out. <laughs> um, in the morning, do you do it in late in the evening? I mean. Uh, I'm liking to do it in the morning, you know, by the evening, it's just, it's too late. Um, ideally in the morning before people start emailing you. Um, and then you got a good head of steam. Uh, if I check emails before starting writing, it almost always goes to pot. <laughs> so, uh, to anyone who's trying to get a hold of me in the morning, I'm sorry. Do you need coffee to get started? Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Is that, is that the, first, the first move in the morning? Uh, yeah, you know, it's kind of just nice to have a thing that you need to do where you need to sit down and just chill out for a minute. Um, long story short, I actually grew up Mormon and only started drinking coffee within the last couple of years. And so this is a new addition to my life. Um, oh, wow. yeah. And so like prior to coffee, it's not like coffee is like the all central, like consuming thing in life. But like prior to that, it was like you wake up and you're just off to the races. You're just like, go, 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 go. Um, 
there's no like pause point in the morning. And it turns out I really like having a pause point in the morning. So. It, can I, so can I ask, are there other, are, did you completely stop observing all the laws or you're like slowly integrating some other things? I don't know. Like um, <laughs> you know, I, I didn't, it's kind of funny because Mormonism like places like this weird amount of emphasis on what you eat and drink. Um, but like domestic violence is kind of overlooked, (laughs) which is a little bit backwards to me. Right. Um, you know, so that you have a church that kind of fosters a lot of like really not good interpersonal behavior and relationships, but like, if you drink coffee, you're bad. Um, so for the first few years after I stopped doing church stuff, I was like, I'm doing this to like regain control of my life. I'm not here to give myself over to substances. Um, <laughs> cause a lot of the, the Mormon discourse about people who leave is like, they're bad because they just want to like sin and drink all the things. Right. So I was like, I'm not going to be that person. Um, you know, until I felt like I'd, you know, found a good grounding for myself. I was like, okay, I know who I am. I'm not going to like run off and become an alcoholic. Now I feel like I have like a good sense of self. You know, it was, it was really more about kind of reclaiming um, my own sense of right and wrong. And then I felt comfortable making those judgments about what to eat and drink, if that makes any sense. It wasn't like, I want to drink, so I'm leaving. <laughs> How old were you when you started to not do the church stuff? Uh, 30. That was like my 30-year gift to myself. <laughs> what was it about that year that you think made you change um you know i've been really unhappy with everything for years right like probably two to you know i'm trying to think hang on yeah we're like three to five years um just kind of getting more and more like unhappy with everything that was happening right and i really spent the last two to three years of that like basically i'm only involved in this to like intervene when people are trying to do crazy shit at church right like that's why i'm here i'm not here because i believe in any of this um which is a really unhealthy approach to anything and a really bad reason to be involved in anything um right it's sort of a guilt from a guilt from a place of guilt kind right? of from a place of guilt and also kind of from a place of like you know back before like back when i was like really fully into this because I, I was raised in this you don't really get a chance to build your own like sense of right and wrong So, you know, I just like did Mormon stuff that was not positive. Like I was a really judgmental bitch against people because that's what normal looked like. Right. Um, So like, I just kind of felt a need to kind of help teach other people not to be that way. (laughs) You kind of see the error of your ways and you're like, okay, I feel a need to fix this. And I don't wouldn't, I wouldn't put it as a sense of guilt so much as a sense of duty, if that makes any sense. Um, Like I've been a part of the problem. Let's at least try to be part of the solution. Um, so was there a yeah. moment when you flipped the switch that there was there like one moment or just sort of gradually started to happen that you, uh, this? I think in retrospect, it's really easy to kind of go like, that was the moment. Um, there are definitely a lot of things that should have been the moment. Right. Um, cause again, when you get raised in something, I think you're taught to believe that things are normal that are not. And so it takes a long time to see them for what they are. It's like, if you grew up in a house that's full of domestic violence, you just think that's normal. You don't realize there's anything wrong with it, right? And it takes it. You just have to grow out of it. And uh, so, no, there was no single thing. I mean, there was definitely a moment when it became official that I was not going back to church. But like, I'd already been mentally out for like three years. 
<laughs> by that point. So it's, it's a little bit revisionist to call that a breaking point, but you know, I just had to go to a conference for work or school stuff and had to drive down there on a Sunday, didn't make it to church. Um, and then halfway down there, I was like, I just knew I was like, and I'm never going back now. Like wow. it wasn't a decision. I was like, well, that's just how it is now. <laughs> and, uh, and I felt really good about that decision. And, uh, so it stuck. And w were there significant ramifications or not really? Not really. Um, there can be for a lot of people just kind of depending on their family situation. I was financially independent from my parents, um, which I think is actually probably part of why it happened when it did. Um, and that might be why I'm kind of really sensitive to that when it comes to talking to young farmers, because the ones who are financially independent can say whatever they want. And the ones who are not, you know, like are just, you know, they speak up and their life is over, right? Um, they're like nipped in the bud before they can be anybody. Mm. So that's that's definitely a thing. Um, I had seen... Would, go ahead. You would liken it to... I mean, your light, it's, that's an interesting parallel that you just made. To, mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's, that's why you're uh, so adamant about trying to help these younger farmers see, speak their voice. No, I mean, it's. Yeah. Well, and I like during my last few years in Mormonism, um, again, so like millennials, you know, I'm kind of like on the little older ish end of the millennials. So there were, you know, I had some peers who also grew up in very violent families and, um, it's really interesting because like this happened enough times, like there were enough really violent families that just like exploded at some point that I actually kind of, you start to be able to see the patterns and you're like, wow, it's not good to have enough of that in your life that you can detect a pattern. Right. Um, but there is definitely one of like, so one of the oldest siblings, like this was usually in families that had tons of kids. Like I'm talking five to 10 kids. Right. Um, not every family with tons of kids is abusive, but you know, it happens. Um, so typically it would be like one of the oldest two or three siblings who'd kind of break away first and be like, Hey, by the way, everyone, all this stuff was happening. You're like, dad was sexually abusing these kids, like beatings were happening, blah, blah, blah. It would be one of the oldest siblings who would speak out first. And it was almost always when they had become financially independent. Mm. Like that money tie was huge in keeping people quiet. And as soon as that starts happening, then people start going like, Oh, allegations you know like the the parents friends start clutching their pearls and and all of that stuff and then there are also a lot of siblings still in the family who are still like they may be minors and still living at home or they're adult but still kind of financially independent and so there's kind of like this real um fission within the family you know of like who's kind of siding with that oldest sibling who's friendly speaking out versus who's like oh they're just crazy um and you kind of watch the siblings as they become financially independent go, yep, nope, it's true. <laughs> right. And um, so I just, I don't know, like, it's really interesting because when people talk about like solving problems in agriculture, they, they often take kind of like a Marxist, like class-based analysis to it. And I'm not saying there's nothing to that, but I think if you really want to understand what's happening um, in the United States in general and in agriculture as well, the best lenses for understanding that is not class. Um, it is domestic violence and it is like oppressive church behavior. Like those are the two things you need to understand. Wow. Yeah. That's heavy stuff. Uh, yeah. It's fascinating. Mm -hmm. And so are, are, do you think that more millennials are 
dropping out of the church in greater at a greater rate yeah (laughs) and is that what what do you think that that's a result of uh you know i think they told us that you know millennials are like the first generation that adults really kind of taught them what sexual abuse was for one thing and was like by the way this is bad and we should talk about that and then millennials like took that shit seriously and now it's blowing everything apart uh i think that's really a huge part of it um is the Me Too movement hitting that in some way? I mean, I know that sounds sort of trite or whatever, but is, is that a factor as well? Uh, yeah, I think like the cultural changes and kind of like the the change in sexual ethics that led to the Me Too movement, like sexual abuse has been happening for a very long time. And now we finally have a critical mass of victims who understand what happened to them and have the support to say something and can credibly believe that their life might not be ruined by speaking out. And so, yeah, I think that's what's happening. Um, It's a cultural moment, yada, yada. Um, And I'm not saying that all the problems in agriculture are because of sexual abuse, but it's like that kind of willingness to speak out and kind of have a more critical uh, take on just because good old boys wish something to be so does not make it so. It's just kind of that whole atmosphere. Yeah. Wow. Good old boys. Good old boys. They're at the bottom of it all. (laughs) <laughs> yeah um interesting mm. and so do you still have a connection i mean can i ask do you still have a connection with your family with with people with friends from the community the church and stuff like that did you experience some kind of uh, loss when when it all went down um you know it's 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 complicated right so a big part of being Mormon is it takes up so much of your life that before you know it, that's your entire social life is people at church. And so you're not just leaving a church, you're leaving your entire social life behind. Right. Um, I, I'm Jewish. I have the experience of ah. the synagogue and the entire community and, and schools and everything that gets built around that. I mean, yeah. for a lot of people, their yeah. entire life. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's really interesting because like, I could be wrong, but it feels like Judaism has a lot more like okayness with people don't have to be a hundred percent devout to be like worth hanging out with. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of a lot of uh, a lot. It depends, right? Yeah, They're like very... orth- ultra orthodox communities are their own thing, right? But right, and so if you sort of break from that, um, you know, I would imagine there is a similar sort of vacation um, mm-hmm. and and like. Oh, we got to keep our distance as there would be in the Mormon church. Mm-hmm. But in general, some of the, even Orthodox, but like a bit of the more reasonable Orthodox, sort of like anything that you do is, is good, mm-hmm. right? Like the more you do the better, but you do what you can. Yeah. Uh, which is good. It's not that way in Mormonism where it can be depending on the community. You know, it's changing now because so many people are leaving. Um, so it, it's interesting because anytime you read kind of a, somebody talking about their experience, leaving a faith of any kind, um, if it's worth writing about, it means it was probably kind of a traumatic experience. And it's interesting because they seem to all have so much more in common than they are different. Right. So reading sure. the stories of people who left like super Orthodox Judaism, like it really resonates. Like, I've had a lot of these experiences as well, like not the same exact ones with like, um, you know, the rules is for dressing are a little bit different. Like we don't, I don't think we, we don't do the mikvah ladies thing, you know, so that's new and different for me, but, um, but just the whole, um, just the whole thing about losing your community and your family's like, this is terrible. You're making a big mistake. And they're kind of like coming after you a little bit to try and drag you back. Um, 
you know, not really knowing what to do with yourself now that you're like out naked in the world. Um, yeah. There's, I kind of, I just told people, I was like, it's kind of like being an alcoholic. If you're going to quit being Mormon and you need to not have friends that are just your Mormonism buddies, it's like an alcoholic needs to have friends besides their drinking buddies. Um, right. <laughs> um, well, no, I mean, yeah. if, if I, I experience it, like I, I try my hardest really to not drink very much. And yeah. so when you drink and every one of your friends, pretty much that's the activity that they do. Mm-hmm. You need to find things to do. Mm-hmm. Right? Exactly. On that stuff and it's not going to be fun right? yeah yeah so like you had a life that was built around a certain activity and just like certain like group of activities and now you need to completely reorganize your life around something else so there's like there's a little bit of a hollowness at first because you haven't found how you're going to replace it yet and yeah. i think that really kind of freaks a lot of people out i had read enough people's stories about leaving their own religions whether it be mormonism or something else to kind of expect that and so like I just got really into fandom for a while. Like I used to do that a lot in high school and I was like, back to the comic books. <laughs> cause I just like, not cause they're like super important religiously, but just cause I needed kind of something else to occupy all that empty time in your head for a little bit while you resort things. Right. Um, and that's fine. Uh, wait, what yeah. comic books? I mean, are they like Mormon religion? No, religion? no. Like Marvel. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, but I was also in grad school at the time or doing a postdoc. So that also took up a lot of time that, that helped a lot. Um, you know, it's, I don't know. It's kind of like second adolescence. It's just like, oh, I'm just really confused right now and feeling a lot of things and that's fine. And that's normal. Um, right. if you expect, I think if you go in kind of expecting to, to be a little bit lost then it's not as disorienting. Um, let's see trying to think and i mean we've moved to fayetteville since then and so in that sense like it's it's still kind of isolating again um i work at who home is, uh, go ahead who is we uh me and my who husband we, you and your husband so did you leave the when, when did you get married if you don't mind me asking uh 2006 we were 22 wow so and it happens um so we, we've finished you, go ahead you made a joint decision to leave yeah, so he actually stayed in for a few years longer than I did, and we're it's funny because we were both on the same page about how this is bullshit, but because he's a dude and has a penis, people would listen to him when he said, that's bullshit and we shouldn't do it. And so he was like, it's actually worth it for me to stay here, to like continue kind of working people through some stuff that we, you know, we have some friends who are working through some stuff. I can be there to help them out. I can kind of keep the congregation from doing some of its more egregiously crazy things, because people actually listen to me because of privilege. Um, whereas for me, it was like, no one really cared what I thought. <laughs> so you might as well leave. Um, uh, it was kind of funny too, because, and this happens with a lot of people who leave, but once you do, um, all of a sudden people remember who you are and they're like, oh, we love her and we got it. We got to go get her back and we got to let her know just how much we appreciate her. And I'm just thinking like, I was kind of starting to learn what PTSD was and that it doesn't just happen to soldiers. It can happen to anybody who's had traumatic experiences, um, such as domestic violence, you know, um, like not to trivialize soldiers experience, but all that stuff is happening to them when they're adults and they know why they're getting shot at. Like it sucks, but you know why it's happening. I'm in a war zone. Um, when you're a kid and there's just violence happening all around you and you're like afraid you're going to die because your parents in a rage, you don't know why that's happening. You think that's your fault. And so it creates a very different situation uh, with the PTSD. Um, 
you know, and I kind of started to understand how much the church was tied in to why that was happening and why nobody ever intervened. Um, you know, and so I kind of like started experiencing some like PTSD, like flashbacks and like, what do you call it? Um, nightmares and stuff like that. Not nightmares. I was never really part of it, weirdly enough. Um, but just like, uh, what's with a panic attack? That's what it is. And like, I never had them like the conventional panic attack um, because when you grow up with PTSD, you just process that stuff differently, right? Um, but like, my body would just go numb and like, I couldn't really hear anything. And so I was just kind of like inert for a lot of the time that I was at church. Um, and I could kind of like feel it sucking years out of my life. You know what I mean? Like, I'm just not going to live as long <laughs> if I'm living in this stress all the time. Um, there's like a very physical reaction. And so the last couple years I was there, I was like really kind of inert a lot of the time that I was at church. And so there are all these people going like, oh, we miss you so much. We love you so much. And I'm like, bitch, y'all don't even know me. I'm like a husk of myself when you're around. Um, right. Which is, I don't know, it's just interesting to watch. Like you have this posse of people who, again, like they've, they've been raised and taught to believe this, right? Um, right. They're robots just the same, right? Like yeah. they're, they're not, not to be so extreme but i mean they are also victims of the yeah of the the religion right it's uh, like I mean, yeah. yeah like i've been there i've done that i get it um <laughs> but i'm gonna have to remove myself from this um and it, it was it was really funny because when you're in that kind of community for long enough you kind of like you're really given the idea that it's your responsibility to fix everyone like there's no sense of boundaries that's part of how they get you right um, but when you're in one of these communities long enough, you kind of see that like, oh, people who want to do better and who want to have better relationships and like live a good life, they right. do learn from, right. They, I mean, they want to learn <laughs> best practices, how to have relationships that don't result in abuse and yeah. things like that. Right? Yeah. Like it's possible. Yeah. People who want that will learn how to do it whether I'm here to teach right. them or not. Like, I'm not fucking magic. They don't really need me if they're going to change their life. Like, they are an adult and they have the resources to do that. And they are chained to some degree also to that life. Yeah. Wouldn't you say? Or... Mm, not a lot of people so much anymore. <laughs> yeah. So the church has really been, my understanding is just hemorrhaging people for the last five, maybe 10 years now. So, um, it used to I be. I think that's probably universal yeah. across religions. Yeah. Um, yeah, the Reagan Revolution was not successful with the child rearing ideology. It turns out. Hmm. Yeah. Can I? Can you speak to life on the other side more or less? I mean, is do you feel are there things that are like amazing that you haven't, you know, that you're only just getting into now or? Um, yeah, I feel like, I don't know, like, it's hard to say because like the, the exit from Mormonism also kind of coincided with like the end of grad school and like finally finishing a postdoc and getting into real adult life, which is just harder, um, other than financially. <laughs> Go ahead. What's harder? What, what's harder about Well, it's, it's like the transition from like having an actual job description to being a freelancer, right? So that's just like weird and hard and complicated. And you're constantly, you know, like just being your own boss is weird. Um, it's a level of adulthood that is just a whole nother level. And that kind of coincided with the leaving of Mormonism. 
So it's it's kind of hard to say like which existential stress is from like leaving church as opposed to like just from freelancing, right? Like what am I doing with my life? Right. Uh, but it, it's funny that you chose to be your own boss at the same time. Like you took complete control. Of your life. <laughs> yeah. Funny, huh? I mean, a lot of it was also just because the job market was crap. Right. Um, so that was necessity as much as anything else. Um, but yeah, like just kind of given a lot of the employment and just experiences that I've had in life, I was like, you know what? Like I can do a better job with my life than anybody else can that I trust at this point. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I, I felt that too recently. Like I'm tired of entrusting. I've worked for a bunch of different um, startups and I'm sort of, I, I'd rather fail at my own stuff as opposed to failing, you know, being a part of somebody else's failure. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like I'd like to control even if it is my failure. Yeah. I think that that's probably a millennial, a symptom of millennials <laughs> is this you know, quest for more control over more control and independence. Would you say that? Or? Yeah. Well, and I think that's like, it, it's, it's kind of easy to go like, this is a millennial thing, but you know, why? I think it's because a lot of the, the, the adults that we grew up with did a really shit job of being responsible adults. Like, and now for some reason we have trust issues. Right. Um, <laughs> so it's really kind of, it's funny. Cause whenever people say kids these days, like, well, why do the kids these days, why are they like that? It's because of the adults these days. So, um, anytime we're talking about generational change in some ways, you know, it's just people doing their own thing, but in a lot of other ways, it's a reflection on, you know, what happened before. Yeah. Well, I don't know. <laughs> um, no, it's, it's, it's fascinating. Um, and so do you have expectations for the next five to 10 years? I mean, or five years, let's say. Yeah. I mean, what do, you, what do you hope to get out of it? Yeah. So the podcast was kind of like an inter project break. Like I'm kind of, okay, I'm done doing the auditing and hopefully backing out of consulting. Um, Cause those are just kind of like freelance gopher jobs for other people. And it's like, okay, I want to do stuff that's more self-directed. I want to do stuff that I think is actually going to make a difference, make a change, yada, yada. I'm not hundred percent sure what that is yet because I've been like underwater dealing with other people's stuff as a freelancer for years. So let me just take a little bit of time to get reoriented. Um, so I've, I've been able to take that time, kind of identify a couple other things that I'm really, really interested in. Um, so that's great. I will talk about them when they're ready to talk about, it. <laughs> uh, have a book coming out, which is great. Um, and I don't know, like kind of discovering through this process, I am not a professional content creator by trade. Like it's doing the podcast interviews is fun, but then dealing with the production and everything, I'm just like, oh, I hate this. Um, yeah. Like I'm just a hands in the dirt kind of person. Um, so it's kind of finding ways like with future projects to kind of have that hands on, like I'm actually doing something as opposed to just like telling other people about stuff we could do um, experience. Like, Huh? You want to create things. You want to create things. Yeah. Um, and it's like, I don't know, there, there's there's this really funny tension between like doing things and talking about doing things, right? Because we kind of talked about um, you can't just go out on your own and do dramatic stuff, right? You need a team. You need people who believe in what you're doing. You probably need a sugar daddy or like a bunch of them <laughs> to make it happen, right? So nothing worth doing can be done alone. So if you have a vision, you need to spend some time like getting that vision out there into the world, right? It's not just enough to have an idea. You have to communicate that and kind of like get other people to buy in. 
Um, so you do need to spend time communicating and you do need to spend some time like just talking and sharing ideas. Right. Um, but then once you've done that, it's time to take that football and run it down the field. So I'm kind of feeling the need to make that transition of running it down the field. Now that we've got, you know, I didn't really expect to have a platform of this size. I was just kind of frustrated about some stuff and wanted to talk about it. And then people were into it, which is awesome. Um, yeah, that is awesome. That seems to be one <laughs> very distinct path that people take is like just having something to say and having it be like complaining about the way things are. People tend to really, I think, build quite a following around right well i feel like in some ways that's like the essence of your 30s right like you've been in it long enough to be like this isn't right but you don't have enough power to do anything about it yet so you're like all i can do is blab right but the blabbing is what (laughs) gets you the power yeah in the end right turns out yeah it's it's really kind of frustrating because you know when you work in the sustainability industry you start to see very plainly by your 30s that Money does not follow, um, and, and power does not follow things that work. It follows fame, which is, that's a mess, you know? And so you're like, okay, well, if I want to get anything done, you got to stick your head out there on the old chopping block <laughs> of public communication. So, um, I don't know. So then I did that for a couple of years and hopefully we'll be able to, to use that and actually move on with it. I'm not trying to like make a career out of being a talking head. So no, but it's a tool. Yeah, it's a, it's a, you have it's a tool for whatever for your next main project. I guess. Yeah, your next couple of main projects. Right. Well, like not to uh, not to like talk shit about like being a content creator for a living because it actually is really important. It's just like not personality wise. Turns out what I'm suited for. Yeah, yeah I I see it as a tool. Um, yeah, the, I, there are people that can really sink their teeth into it and have it be their life. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of do this on the side because it's it's I I feel like it helps me create something that I want to be said or that I want that I think the world should hear is how people are navigating their 30s so it just it helps me create this thing that I think should be created but it's not I'm not doing it to be a content creator right yeah you just like have stuff you want to say right (laughs) that's wild that's great though like that's that's the place to be is like I feel like there's like that's for you yeah, well, I, you know? I feel like there's folks who are kind of like, well, I want to be a content creator for a living. And then you're kind of in search of a message, which can be like a weird sticky right. place to be, you know? Yeah, no, that's true. Yeah. And so if you had to say what the message is that you're trying to get out there, what would you what would you say if you had to really um, condense it? Oh, man. Um. Okay, so I stumbled across a story this morning that I'm going to tell you and I'm going to try and keep it short. Once upon a time, we used to live next to a giant bat colony. They lived in a bat house. And so at night, people would come and, and look at all the bats pouring out, and it was pretty cool. And there was this group of four or five hawks that would try and eat some of the bats. And it didn't work out because the bats were a lot faster than they were. Um, and the hawks would get really frustrated. They're ambush predators, and so they want to sit on a perch and like dart out and grab something. And so they would get like, oh, well, I'm having bad luck. It's not because I'm bad at hunting bats because I'm a hawk and I'm the wrong shape for this. It's because I don't have a good perch. Um, So they would start squabbling over perches, right? And they would wind up spending more time fighting over perches with each other than actually hunting bats. So that happened all the time. It was kind of like slapstick looking. It was like, this is kind of funny. Like, bless them. They're trying their best. Um, 
And then one morning, that, that was at sunset, right? When the bats are coming out. Then one morning, like, I got woken up by a crying baby nearby and was like, ugh, you know, it's too early to do anything. Um, why don't I go out? Because this is right next to our apartment. Why don't I go out and watch the bats come in for the morning? Because that's got to be a thing, right? And I get out right. there and uh, I see this thing I've never seen before, which is falcons. Totally different kind of bird of prey. They are... Um, they hunt in the air like they hunt birds and apparently bats. Um, so they actually have the speed and maneuverability to chase a bat down. And they were just doing laps around the bat house. There was like three or four of them. And they were like taking turns, swooping by the entrance where all the bats were coming in. <laughs> and, um, you know, so the bats were tired from a night of flying around and they're kind of weighed down by this tummy full of bugs. So they're a little bit slower too. And the falcons are just making hay out of it. And... Like, they kind of regularly spaced themselves out. They were staying out of each other's way. They weren't pack hunting or anything. They just weren't getting in each other's way. And, um, you know, they got a lot more bats. <laughs> so the moral of the story is, you know, like, hawks can't change who they are. They are built the way they're built. This is not their fault. Um, but uh, be the falcon. Don't be the hawk. Mm. Be the falcon, don't be the hawk. I like that. Yeah. That's right. Um, I don't know. Like, I don't know. Like, don't spend your time squabbling over a carcass. Or, like, just don't spend your time squabbling over... It was, like, this unlimited resource. There's, like, clouds of bats. And they spend all their time squabbling with each other. Which is just so silly. <laughs> right. Be the falcon, not the hawk. Yeah. I like it. Um, do, do you have any uh, any books that have really spoken to you recently or? oh my goodness um currently reading braiding sweetgrass by robin wall kimmerer and it is phenom what's it about it is she is a botanist who is also a potawatomi so she's talking about how indigenous knowledge that she was raised with and is also kind of like trying to relearn um really fits and how it can fit in her training as a botanist uh, relating to the natural world, like I think a lot of people have this feeling that humans are inherently bad. Everything we do is bad for the earth. We just have to kind of like stop existing. And she's like, listen, we, you know, I won't say like lived in harmony with the earth, but like we had a good thing going for like 10,000 years. It's not that humans are inherently bad. It's just that we have some bad behavior patterns right now. So it kind of speaks to my ex-Mormon heart a little bit about patterns of behavior and building good relationships and how you can't like we talk a lot about having a land ethic and we need to go back to having a land ethic and i don't think you can have a land ethic if you don't have a people ethic first you need to learn how to build good relationships and then we can heal the land and i think we keep trying to do the land first and then not worry about the people um so braiding sweetgrass really talks about that and that's it's just fantastic Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, I I don't want to keep you. I know you have to go. Um, I think we're a little over time. Yeah. Um, but this has been really interesting. I think about the first half was all about sort of farming, and yeah. you know, I was trying to learn a little bit about <laughs> your thoughts there. It was, uh, interesting, and then the, the second half was fascinating too about your life so i, I really appreciate you joining oh thanks today. yeah no this is really good because i feel like a lot of podcasts are just kind of like you go over the same points about agriculture and you're like well did it again okay cool but like yeah, I mean, agriculture is <laughs> a pretty big part of your life but i'm also right. very interested in, in you 
know who Dr. Sarah Tabor is, yeah. right? So you know, it was great. And I think like again, you really can't understand what's happening in agriculture if you don't understand how like bad relationships work at like the family scale, the church and community scale, like everything. Like that's so key to knowing it. So I think this actually like really did the job. Yeah, it's so fascinating the connection between those two halves of the of the podcast. <laughs> I, I I I hope you write about that and the connection. Oh, it's happening. Or maybe I, <laughs> oh. it's happening. Maybe when you, maybe when you release your book, we'll we'll do another sesh and, and hit on it because I even have a few more points that I oh, yeah. didn't get to. That that always happens, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's do it. Okay. Well, so Sarah, you you can be found on Twitter um, at Sarah Tabor underscore bww. Yep. Right. Yeah. And the uh, your podcast Farm to Tabor. It's farmtotabor.com. Uh, yes. It's also on SoundCloud under Farm to Tabor, and SoundCloud apparently does not get a well get along well with a lot of SoundCloud or excuse me podcast apps. So I apologize for that. If I'd known things would be different, but uh, you can definitely find it on SoundCloud. It's all there. Yeah. Okay. So you can find it on SoundCloud Farm to Tabor. Mm-hmm. Um, this is Living Thirty. You can find more podcast episodes and blog posts at living30.blog. Thank you everyone for joining. Thank you, Sarah, for, for joining as well. It was great. Yeah. Good having you. Thanks. Or good. You having me for, I'm used to podcasting and being the host and I messed up. (laughs) It's okay. Um, That's great. You're in, you're in the, you're in the hot seat. So it it worked. You're in the zone. zone. All right. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Have a good one. Thanks, Sarah. All the best. Bye. Thanks again, everybody, for listening. Make sure to get in touch at living30.blog. Let's make this an unbelievable decade. Until next time, I'm Max Finder, and this is Living 30.